Hello and welcome to the Lincolnshire LMC Hot Topics podcast. So I'm Lucy Doddington Boys, I'm a GP working with the LMC and I've got Naomi Watkins Liquidinska who's here to talk to us today. Hi Lucy, thank you for asking me. I am Naomi Watkins Liquidinska. I'm the CEO of NW Counselling Hub which was set up in 2017. We're based in Lincoln and we cover the whole of Lincolnshire. My background as to why I'm talking to you today, I thought I would just share a bit about why and what my knowledge is. So um, um, I've got my BSc Ons in Psychology, I'm a qualified counsellor, I'm a Churchill Fellow, so I went to Australia and New Zealand in 2019 and researched suicide, um, self-harm in young people. I've been a psychotherapist for 15 years and I've worked for Childline the NSPC for eight years and I've had 12 years working in domestic abuse and sexual abuse. And I'm also fully qualified independent domestic violence advisor, a young person's violence advisor, and an independent sexual violence advisor. So a lot of my work has sadly been to do with self-harm and suicide. And today we're concentrating on self-harm. What is self-harm? So a variety of presentations that can come from self-harm. What are the factors that put some adults and young people more at risk of involving themselves in self-harm? so that we can recognise any warning signs that indicate somebody might be harming themselves, how to assess potential risk, so risk assessment advice, what to say, what not to say, strategies to support people overcoming self-harm, management plans, signposting resources, and any COVID adaptions we need to think about for telephone and remote appointments. I always do an emotional trigger warning before any subject that I talk about, but there could be some of you watching this that have actually got people in their family that self-harm you may have yourself so obviously if you need to speak to anybody there's organizations and agencies at the end and I'm happy for you to contact me if you need to as well. So what is self-harm and why do people self-harm? So self-harm is when somebody hurts themselves as a way of dealing with very difficult feelings, painful memories or overwhelming situations. Um, some people have described self-harm as a way to express something that's hard to put into words. Um, to turn invisible thoughts or feelings into something visible, to change emotional pain into physical pain, to reduce overwhelming emotional feelings or thoughts, to have a sense of being in control, because lots of people have things going on in their lives that are out of their control, so self-harm gives them something to be able to control, to escape traumatic memories, to have something in life that they can rely on, Sometimes it's to punish themselves for feelings or experiences that they've had. To stop feeling numb or disconnected or disassociated. To create a reason to physically care for themselves. Uh, or to express suicidal feelings and thoughts without taking their own life. Self-harm and suicide are not always linked, but sometimes they are. Sometimes it's a protective factor to stop somebody having a suicide attempt. Um, but that we're not to assume that because someone's self-harming, they're suicidal, so we should always ask the question. Um, some other reasons or things that people have said are issues that might make them self-harm are pressures at school or work, particularly at the moment, thinking about people on long-term furlough um, and being at home for long periods of time. Bullying, either as an adult or a child. Money worries, again, another prevalent one at the moment. Uh, sexual, physical or emotional abuse, bereavement, 
homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, breakdown of a relationship, loss of a job, illness or health problem, low self-esteem, an increase in stress or difficult feelings such as depression, anxiety, anger or numbness. I'm sure none of that um, surprises you. Um, and it may seem like, well, anything could cause someone to self-harm. And it really is individual to each person. So it's always best to ask the question. Sometimes people don't know either. So be prepared for a don't know answer sometimes. So after self-harming, people actually sometimes feel a sense of release. So it can have that feel-good factor, which is why it's a, a repetition. Um, but it's unlikely, obviously, that any of those problems I've just listed would have gone away from self-harming. So it can also bring up very difficult emotions and can make people feel worse and they end up in a bit of a vicious cycle. Although there's generally always reasons underneath someone harming themselves, it can obviously carry risks. So once someone has started to depend on self-harm, it can be quite a long process to be able to stop um, self-harming. So there's no kind of quick fix out there. Obviously, with self-harm, there can be feelings of embarrassment or shame. So it can take a long time to tell somebody um, or to feel that they're able to seek help um, because they're worried that someone's going to judge them or pressurise them um, to stop doing it. Um, so lots of people keep their self-harm a secret. Um, obviously not everyone does, but that's quite a, a, a classic reaction. Um, and these things you can find more about on Mind. I've got links at the end, but I always put where my sources are from. So you, and it's the most relevant up to date. So it's from 2020. So I thought it would be good to cover how people self-harm, because I think when people talk about self-harm, there is this kind of um, sweeping notion that self-harm is purely just cutting. And don't get me wrong, cutting is probably one of the highest, most prolific amounts of self-harm, but there are so many other ways people can um, self-harm or self-injure. So this is not an exhaustive list, but these are the cases that I've worked with over the years. So obviously we've got cutting on there. Um, poisoning is quite a tricky and risky one because people can, um, I've had cases where young people have been taking bleach, for example, or have been um, using um, drugs, so even paracetamol, and pushing their body to that absolute maximum. Um, so not wanting to die, but wanting to harm themselves to have the reaction. Um, overeating or undereating. So often eating disorders can be misdiagnosed as self-harm, and sometimes the other way around, but you're looking at a period of time so how long has somebody been overeating or undereating is there a trigger what is the motive um you know you are very skilled people watching this so you will know what an eating disorder looks like but sometimes it is a more of a self-harm measure um and sometimes both things are equally uh, need to be diagnosed and dealt with depending on how far the person is into that behavior alongside that Exercising excessively might sound a bit odd, um, but again, it's pushing your body to that boundary. So pushing it way over that, knowing where that line is and going way past it. So um, running to the point of being sick or exercising to a point where you pass out. And again, it's about harm. It's not actually about health. So we need to be really mindful of these things when we're suggesting 
um, things to people like going on a healthy diet or exercising more, which of course we do need to be doing, but we need to know what people are already doing before we make these suggestions. Some people do things like biting themselves, picking or scratching skin. So you might see that quite a bit as a GP. You might see skin conditions and you'll be, again, you're more skilled to know whether a skin condition is um, self-inflicted or not. But some of the people I've worked with, I worked with someone who was a skin picker. And it, if I didn't know they were self-harming, it would, to me, a layman, it would just look like a skin condition. Um, but it was it was got quite bad to the point where there was big scars on their face as well. Because um, generally these things are hidden. So that's another thing to mention is if your patients are always coming in really covered up even in the summer. So having long sleeves on or, you know, looking like they're not dressed appropriately. That could be an indicator that there's self-harm going on. Because, um, again, with one of my clients recently, we were talking and she put her arm up to do something and her sleeve fell down and I saw some marks on her arm so then I was able to ask her about it but if she hadn't done that I wouldn't necessarily have known so sometimes it's just asking the question um but yeah picking or scratching has become more popular I'd say in recent years and um, burning skin so sometimes people uh, there was a while back wasn't there with the ice cube incidents that kind of went you know uh, global but uh, even people with lighters and cigarettes and things like that um inserting objects into the body is a fairly um scary one and, and quite prolific one if someone's using that it means they've gone quite far in perhaps previous self-harm behaviors and now they're not working for them so they've had to escalate the self-harm that they're using hitting themselves or walls so again we might attribute that to anger but again, if they're harming themselves, if it's causing injury to themselves and not other people, then it's less likely to be a violent trigger, but more a harm trigger. Uh, misusing substances. So again, you might think, oh, well, people are using alcohol, prescription, recreational drugs because that's something else. But again, it could be to harm themselves because of their dumbing, uh, numbing out a um, experience that they had as a child, for example, childhood sexual abuse. Um, pulling out hair, so again people could attend couldn't they with um, alopecia signs or bold signs but actually is it is it that or is it self-inflicted? And then again some that we may not have considered, so having unsafe sex, so putting ourselves in risky sexual situations, um, again is just a, a risky behaviour that people sometimes do because it's a way to not care for yourself and not look after yourself or not deem yourself worthy. Um, and getting into fights where you know you will get hurt, so where you know the outcome will be that you don't come out well from that the other side. So I would imagine that some of those are um, a surprise um, to you, but it's just making sure that we're very open to the types of self-harm that can be present, and that it's not just a closed book in that sense. So I've been asked to cover um, young people and adults. So I've tried to do that all in uh, one webinar and um, I hopefully I will achieve it. Um, I said that I worked with Childline, the NSPCC, and this is from a piece of research from 2014. Um, and what they found was that some of the reasons young people harm are the same as adults and sometimes they're different. Um, but if you think about young people, we know, don't we, that their brains aren't developed until way into their 20s. So they, their frontal lobes aren't fully developed, so they take more risks. So that risk-taking behaviour, which doesn't 
get less until you're an adult is still active. So actually their ways of harming could be more risky um, and could go on for a longer period of time. It could be that they've got childhood ACEs, so adverse childhood experiences, which are making them self-harm. Um, it could be they're not able to deal with emotions, um, problems with puberty, lots of reasons. Um, but generally through this piece of research, young people said that it was a way of releasing tension or anger and it's a physical pain that is easier to deal with than the emotions that they have. Um, again, a lot about control, particularly as a young person, everything's out of your control. You know, everyone's controlling you and telling you what to do and what to say and how to behave. So self-harm can give you a sense of control back. And that's one sometimes that goes hand in hand with the food, for example. So I can be in control of what food I eat or what food I don't eat. Um, Sometimes young people have said they just feel on their own, just quite a lot of loneliness. And again, that's one that's going to be quite prolific at the moment in a pandemic, um, not being able to see their friends, not going to school, not having that interaction. Um, and even some uni students that I've worked with, they go to online lectures, but they're only seeing like what you're seeing now. So a PowerPoint and the lecturer, they're not seeing the other students in the room. Um, so it's a very lonely experience. Um, and sometimes people, feel that they can't feel themselves so to young people have said if I harm I can at least feel like I'm human or I can see that there's a, a something there that's physical um so lots of different things but the kind of main things that came up was was bullying which we know is quite prolific and obviously we've got a lot of online bullying now family relationships anger or loneliness were kind of the top things that came out from that um it's really difficult to say a statistic around self-harm because some people do come forward to GPs or hospitals and other people don't and it's a very secret thing. Um, we, it's thought that around a quarter of 14 year olds have self-harmed but I would say that figure is much higher. Um, generally research shows that self-harm begins at around 12 um, and again that could be the changes from puberty going from primary school to um, secondary school. Girls are still thought generally to be more likely to self-harm than boys. Um, but again, if you think about the behaviours I said before, boys can be self-harming in a more what's socially acceptable masculine way of harming, like fights and punching walls and doors. And girls could be using just different types of harm. Um, it's, it's not always recognised because it obviously doesn't always come to the attention of GPs or hospitals. Um, but 24% of boys aged 16 to 24 uh, do self-harm as a way of coping and that research has come from Young Minds, I've put all the links at the end of the slide, but Young Minds, The Mix and Self-Harm UK 2017. Um, but it doesn't happen to one type of person, it's, it's difficult to predict and the whole picture of it, we don't really know the full picture is what I would say. Um, just a few, I tried to get as many up-to-date statistics as I could, just so you could have a good picture of it. Um, so in terms of Childline, there was about 9,400 young girls and 1,000 boys in 2018-19 who had contacted to talk about self-harm. And lots of people use Childline because it hasn't got the same statutory obligations, so they don't have to report things unless someone's life's at risk. Um, so that's why it's a good resource. Yeah. But I thought this one would be particularly interesting to you 
that um, you know more than a third of uh, 16 to 25 year olds in Britain have self-harmed at some point in their lives. Um, self-harm was defined as when someone intentionally damages or injures their body. Um, but the people they told um, was mainly their friends, um, a counsellor, but a doctor. So GPs, doctors are more likely to get that disclosure than a parent or a teacher. So I think it's quite good that you've um, wanting this training today and that you want to learn more about it because you are more likely to be the first person and maybe the only person that a young person ever tells. And I would say that's similar with some adults because some people have really good relationships with their GPs. Mm. So yeah, I thought you'd find that interesting. Mm. Um, and then a, a little bit about adults. There's not as much statistics about adults. Prevalence of kind of non-suicidal self-harm in England actually has nearly tripled in the last 10 years. That wasn't matched though by a rise in the use of health or support services, which is obviously a, a concern and a worry. And that's from the British Medical Journey, uh, Journal between 16 to 74 year olds. Um, and I guess with adults, it's because there's more shame around telling people. I think with young people, it's the same, but I think they've got more services around them. So you think they've got teachers, sometimes social workers, teaching assistants, counsellors, you know, lots of people. Whereas when we become adults, we don't really have that much of support in our lives or know where to go for support, which is what, what will help you obviously at the end of this, where I can tell you where to signpost to. So um, there are obviously differences between adults and children and young people. Um, and I, I would say that some adults are more likely to access services if it's like accident and emergency. So I would say you will see more adults at A&E, um, but they won't necessarily say it's a self-harm injury. They'll just go with an injury and they'll go when it's got to the point they can't care for it themselves anymore. So it's got infected. Um, and that's why our responses in A&E also need to be on point um, because some of the responses have, have not been so great. Some have been good. And some people have felt that they are more of a hindrance, particularly if it's, say, um, someone who's been in prolifically. So just some things to think about um, when you're speaking to patients. What are the risk factors that you could have to be thinking about? So um, things that people could present that could be a potential risk factor for self-harm could be low mood and anxiety. Um, there could be an existing psychological development difficulty. It's not to say that all people with Asperger's autism or learning difficulties self-harm, but they are shown to be in the higher percentage of people that do. If someone's got a difficulty in communicating, so we know sometimes people who've got language barriers or have got hearing problems or speech problems will self-harm out of frustration because they can't get their words across or their, their vocabulary across. Uh, poor problem-solving skills, um, a feeling of hopelessness, someone who's impulsive, um, drug or alcohol misuse, and sometimes concerns around sexuality. Um, I would say as well that social media influences a lot of people. Um, and there's content on social media, sadly, that does pr promote self-harm. We're obviously doing our best to um, spot that and to report that when we see it. And it is down to some of those individual services to make sure that they do.
but other things that you might see or be aware of or hear about particularly being a GP I suppose you sometimes will see a whole family you'll be that family's GP so you'll know some of this stuff already that there may be some cultural difficulties in the family or relationships or you might know there's a young carer in the family we know that young carers are more likely to self-harm because of not having um, childhood and not having any space um, obviously if there's any abuse going on in the family if there's arguments in the family relationship problems um, there could be a history so if you've worked with a family some of you have been GPs for many years may have worked with parents who were suicidal or self-harmers and sometimes sadly that cycle does repeat not always but sometimes you'll see a pattern in families that comes back down to those childhood aces as well and those repeating um, social factors that may come up people may mention things um, so maybe uh, racism or bullying or things that they've experienced that could cause them to feel that they they need to harm to be able to deal with that. Um, some kind of more warning signs I suppose to think about is I mean the caveat I would put with that is any change in behaviour could be a warning sign of anything not just self-harm so if someone's coming to speak to you and there's a change in their eating or sleeping habits if they are if you ask them about support networks and they say they don't have anybody so they're isolated from friends or family that ties into that loneliness we were talking about perhaps then they're talking about mood changes uh, if it's young people then maybe their grades are slipping but sometimes they can be really high achievers as well so again it can be just a change in behavior um, perhaps they are talking about self-harm or suicide but not about them they might say oh i've got a friend who does this have you got any advice? Again, substances we've talked about, being withdrawn, if they're talking about feelings of failure, uselessness, and giving away possessions, which again, you might think, oh, well, they wouldn't really say that, but it's like a throwaway comment of, oh, well, I did have such and such, but I've given that away now. And that's people's self-worth, that they're just mm -hmm. not valuing themselves. Um, so giving things away, even things that mean something to them. And I would call those, um, invitations or subtle cues so there if someone's telling you these things it's an invitation for you to ask more we can't promise confidentiality in self-harm cases particularly if we feel someone's at risk and we're going to look at how to assess that risk um young people particularly will say oh i want to tell you this but you can't tell my parents or i don't need to tell anybody else and you already know all your confidentiality training but it's the same for self-harm particularly if you feel the self-harm could potentially cause death um, or they're not looking after their self-harm so you know the injuries are leading to infections and things like that so even as therapists we have exactly the same uh, confidentiality discussion with young people and adults about we can't keep the promise that it will stay confidential if it is that you need to inform parents then of course we need to know if there's risk to the young person then because there could be abuse in the family so it's using your usual safeguarding procedures that you would use with any other disclosure. So treating it exactly the same. Um, we obviously, when a young person comes to speak to us, we just make sure they're reminded of that before they make any disclosures. So risk assessment. This is just how I risk assess and how I've been taught to risk assess. Um, this training has come from the NSPCC and Childline and it's kind of what I've used in all my work with children and with adults. But the kind of first thing I'm looking at is I need to assess if there's any immediate risk. 
So what type of self-harm are they doing? I will ask them something like, tell me about the most recent time you self-harmed. What did you do? How did you do it? And try and get them to talk me through step by step. So for physical self-harm, I'm thinking about things like cuts and burns. Um, what kind of, um, if they're using a razor, was the razor clean that they used? Could I see the most recent cut to see? Because young people and adults are very good at saying, what they need to say so that you stop asking questions so we'd want to have a look especially as a gp you'd want to have a look to see what the most recent injury is and because their way of looking after a wound may obviously not be the right way and obviously we know what happens with infection i'm going to talk um about a term called um safe self-harming which will sound very bizarre won't sit comfortably with you and feel very strange but I guess the way to think about it, particularly as a GP, is if someone came to you with a cut on their knee or their leg that they'd done accidentally, you would do the exact same. You would go through your normal processes of looking after that. And just because the injury has been caused because of self-infliction, still need the same advice. So they still need to know how to care for cuts, how to care for burns, how to look after themselves. So there is an excellent website that I would signpost you to called Life Signs, which is all about self-aid for self-injury and self-harm. Um, it talks about things like if you are going to self-harm, try and do it in a calm way and where you won't be um, disturbed. Always using clean blades if you're using razor blades, having a first aid kit with you. Um, it's not saying that we encourage the use of self-harm, so let's be clear on that. But what we want to do is accept that it is a coping mechanism for people. And if we remove a coping mechanism from somebody with no support in place, then it could lead to suicide attempts or even worse self-harm. So in this period of time, we just want to make sure if they're going to be leaving your office or whoever they're speaking to, that they've got the information to be safe and they've got information to then think about other ways of coping so that it's not their continued approach to self-harm. Um, we're wanting people to know that it's okay to use that behaviour, but we really want you to be safe and that we do want to look at triggers and we want to look at how we can use other things. Um, but we need to know that motivation. So after I've done that kind of first layer of risk assessment, made sure there's no immediate risk, because obviously if they're telling me that they're harming by taking medication like I mentioned that example earlier or bleach then that's much more risky and they're not going to be able to control that so I'll probably have to do some safeguarding referrals with that. So once I've done all that and made sure we've got that in place um, I then want to discuss do you know what the trigger is for your self-harm and if so can you tell me. Um, like I said some people excuse me will say I don't know and that could just be because they don't and they're just very chronically depressed um some people might not feel comfortable so they might just say they don't know um or they will be very clear that it's because i was abused as a child or i had a really bad day at work it could be anything so we want to, we need to know the trigger and we need to know what what when they self-harm is it because they then feel a release is it because they then feel that thing they feel more physical because then it's better to know in terms of completing any um signposting so obviously i've mentioned we do any safeguarding referrals if there's any disclosures even at this point so at this point if they say, if it's a young person obviously and they say they're being abused then obviously we've got to follow our normal safeguarding procedure so 
but it's really important we get the last question in which is about asking what support somebody would like um, and what help would do they feel they need because if you think about self-harm being about having some sense of control and then if we go um, steamrolling in there right you know social services referral this is where you need to go these are the people you need to speak to we're just taking that control away again so it may be you can't do what they ask you what you ask them but it's still best practice to ask so what support would you like what help do you think you need and obviously doing all those kind of reaffirming reassurance of well done for telling me and signpost into the support that they have asked for if you can and if not then signpost into some of the agencies that i'm going to pop up at the end does that make sense absolutely yeah yeah okay so i've got um some things about what to say and what not to say none of these are obviously you know um script oh and i've um got some more questions in about risk assessment but i think i've covered those but other things to just think about is um what may have led someone to self-harm how you feel afterwards i think i mentioned we need to make sure our people on their own. So I guess the one where I mentioned about tablets and things like that, when they're doing that, is there anyone else in the home with them? Because then that's more of a risk. Anything they've already tried, so that we're not suggesting things they've already tried. Uh, whether they think they'll do it again, because for some people it can be a one-off incident, uh, rarely, but sometimes it can be one-off incident. And whether obviously they've had any thoughts of ending their life, because we need to assess for suicide risk. So what to say and what not to say. So we're going to acknowledge that they self-harm. We're going to be accepting of that as best as you can. So even if it's putting on your poker face of being non-judgmental, and then, you know, you can still think what you need to think, but we call it bracketing it off. So just putting it to one side. Um, even if you've seen this person a hundred times and it's the same self-harm, it's the same cuts, and you feel like nothing's changing, that today just might be the day that something mm. changes. So it's just being patient with that. Um, reaffirming statements, you've done really well to tell me. I can only imagine how hard that must have been for you. Remember, you are probably the first person they've ever told. So that initial, if it's the first time telling you, we need to make sure we get it right the first time that our response is right. We are not telling you to stop self-harming. We, we need to make sure you're doing it safely. So I need to ask you some questions that are going to be difficult for you to answer then it could be that we're going to work towards looking at other ways of coping. Is that something you're open to looking at with me? Um, what do you want to achieve by seeking help today? Because we need to remember they have come to you and they've told you. So there's, there's probably a part of them that wants to stop um, or it's got too far and they do really need that care about how to take care of themselves. Um, what support do you feel you need? How do we get you feeling better about yourself and your life? So what things could help you, what things are missing, you know, what's happening in their life that's making them feel they need to do this and obviously carrying out a risk assessment. Things to not say or to not do um, is to try our hardest to not pass judgment, to not be critical, to not roll our eyes and be like, oh, you're here again, um, to not be disgusted. Some things are hard to hear. If someone's telling us they're inserting objects into themselves um, I once had somebody who was swallowing cutlery because they couldn't feel anything and it was just to feel something and it's hard to listen to that and it's hard to think about it um, 
so you know not to not not take it seriously so meaning we need to take it seriously to try um especially if someone says they don't know why try not to be frustrated with that because some people don't and try our hardest to not act like it's a waste of our time or services time because we know don't we how much these things cost the nhs how much they cost us to deal with it um but that's because the person hasn't had the support potentially that they've needed prior to that um and if we put in the right support now then that cost will will come down so it's just important that we don't give off that vibe so in terms of how to support people overcoming self-harm now so we've done our risk assessment we've said all the right things what kind of management plan should we be looking at some people do obviously need a care plan which i know is part of your practice anyway um, but I think it's important to include in that what that person wants. So, like I said, even if you can't do it, make sure it's minuted in their care plan. This person really wants to leave home or this person really wants to go to university. It might not seem relevant, but it could be the thing that helps somebody to get through that plan. Uh, if they want a referral to talking therapies, then obviously there's some places to refer to for that. Um, it might be that they need a psychiatric referral because maybe there's a undiagnosed um personality disorder for example that needs medication um we're obviously going to try and work out a plan to working towards alternative coping methods so how can we initially reduce the amount of self-harm self-injury um, what other things could we try what have we tried already we'd want to find out what support network do they have some people don't have anybody but it's good to make a note of yes they have got people living with them at home or friends or family or agencies could already be working with another agency and then if they disclose things like substance misuse and obviously you'd be doing your referrals to we are with you if it's domestic abuse it would be going to edam links and obviously i've put domestic abuse in there because there is a high correlation between domestic abuse and self-harm and we also know that on top of the two women a week that die from domestic abuse three women a week end their lives by suicide uh, because of domestic abuse as well. So there could be a build-up of self-harm before those suicide attempts. So it's important to be asking those questions and including that in the management plans. So I think it would be useful to have a look at some alternatives to self-harm. I'm not saying this is part of your role or things you would be discussing, but I think it's still nice for you to know these are the things that we try and talk to people about um, and this is for all ages um, so that's why I asked you to try and find out what is the trigger so if someone says they feel alone or isolated then what you would suggest as an alternative to self-harm would be different to someone who feels angry so um, the alternatives are relevant to what they've said is the trigger so we're going to encourage trying to talk to somebody journaling um, doing some exercise, uh, walking the dog, you know, wrapping themselves in a blanket, all things that bring comfort. Um, if someone's angry, so if they're doing that punching walls thing or getting into fights, there's other things you can do to get that anger out that's not as violent or harming to yourself. Um, so using like a pillow instead or screwing up paper and throwing it or, um, you know, doing exercise that's safe like boxing and still gets the anger out. Um, sometimes shock tactics like having a cold shower that kind of thing if someone says they feel like they really hate themselves or they're not good enough so they've got low self-esteem then you want to suggest things that bring them back to 
themselves really like grounding techniques so listening to music having a bath um again writing painting creative things things maybe trying to make a list of things about themselves um that is good that is positive or asking others to tell them things that are positive about them um if it's about control so if people say i just really need some control in my life again there's other things you can do that make you feel like you're in control so cleaning or tidying or doing something and setting a target so maybe um, if they feel like harming setting a timer um, for 15 minutes and seeing if they can get through to those 15 minutes and then if they do they probably don't need to do it anymore so distraction techniques if people say they feel numb then again focusing on breathing being around people who make them feel good uh, craft activities playing instruments that kind of thing and if they're feeling like they want to escape then um, or if they say that it's about actually specifically seeing something then if it's cutting you could draw on the body with a red pen and it gives a similar signal to the brain that it's still seeing the same thing or where you would normally harm putting cream there putting lotion there so the person I mentioned that I worked with who was a skin picker that's what we worked on was putting cream on those areas instead of picking and being more aware they were doing it um ice cubes obviously you'll have heard of and elastic bands and all that kind of thing but the caveat for all of this is to always ask what they've tried first because if we start going into these options and they're like well i've already done that i've already done that i've already done that it's just going to lead to that overwhelming sense of hopelessness so that was from Childline, but I've used that with adults as well as young people, and it's been really useful. Um, hopefully that makes sense. And then in terms of making a referral, you will know most of this already, but it's just a recap. So you already know about the fantastic new service we have, the 24-7 number. So we do refer people there as well, because as therapists, we're not a crisis number. We're not open 24-7, so we give that number out a lot. We've had some positive experiences from that number too. Obviously for young people, we've obviously got CAMS social services. Um, obviously we've got the crisis team, psychiatric services, the new mental health hub I think is open now and taking referrals, the one up near the hospital. Okay. I'm not sure if they're doing face-to-face -face at the moment, um, but that helpline will help with that. But and then obviously there's referrals to community group locally I don't know if you've heard of an organisation called Harmless. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they're based in Nottingham, but they are now doing some work in Lincolnshire, and they are self-harm and suicide experts. So we often refer to them. We put training, uh, send our staff on training with them as well, and um, we work together very well. There's obviously ourselves for therapy, um, and we do get actually a lot of referrals from uh, GPs. So it will be a case of you know obviously you can go through the NHS. This is another service we know about which might have a less weight and then it's up to them what they decide because I know you can't directly refer to us and that's that's fine um, but we are a community interest company so um, we're able to take people and provide funded sessions as well for them and just multi-agency working as much as possible as we know in any serious case review or any other um, homicides or anything like that the most is about we haven't multi-agency worked or we've mm. not shared information so when there is a risk gdpr goes out the window as we know so if we need to share that risk we need to be sharing it um, and multi-agency working where we can and then for young people up to 19 you've got um obviously childline who've got a brand new website 
they do um, online chat, email and telephone therapy. There's selfharm.co.uk, which is an excellent resource for young people. Um, young Mind, you'll already know about. You might have heard of Papyrus, you might not, but it's suicide prevention for under 35 years old. And the people who set that up are parents who've lost children to suicide. Mm -hmm. So uh, people with lived experience. They do training as well. And they do a free half an hour training, which you might want to access, which is really good. Um, support for adults, so harmless work with adults. I've mentioned them. Obviously, you know about mind. I talked earlier about life signs, which is the first aid for self-injury. Hub of Hope is a fairly new resource and it's an app as well where it's got a list of local services so you can pop your postcode in and it'll tell you all the services that are available in your area. So we're on there, for example. Staying Safe has got safety plans. So um, with this, I'll send out an example of a safety plan that you can give to patients. Uh, give us a shout, you'll know about is Shout, uh, that Shout service, which is um, online therapy. Obviously, you know about Samaritans who are, who are doing an excellent job and self-injury support is, an, is another very good website as well. So I know it looks like a lot of websites, um, but it's great for further research and for getting um, additional support in those areas. Um, and then in terms of thinking about um, COVID and obviously we're in a pandemic and so things are different. So I appreciate probably while I've been talking, you've been thinking, well, we're not actually seeing people. A lot of it is on the phone, email, or, tele or sometimes it's a, a Zoom like we're doing now. Um, we've had to adapt to working online, obviously, and telephone. So we listen for changes in tone of voice. Um, generally, I would say listen to your gut. You generally know something isn't right. Uh, maybe they've mentioned an injury or an incident. Remember I said about those subtle cues or invitations to ask more. Um, and, and not being afraid to ask the question, you know, so even if you're not sure and there's no history of self-harm at all, it's absolutely fine to say, have you, have you harmed yourself today or have you harmed yourself in the last week? Um, it's not going to plant the seed in someone's head. It's not going to cause any damage. And actually, every single person who I've worked with has said, well, nobody ever asked me, so I've never said. And that's about everything, not just self-harm, you know, domestic abuse, sexual abuse, suicide, everything. Um, so if they're online, are they looking away from the screen? Do they look uncomfortable or in pain? And maybe there's longer pauses than normal. So they're, they're the things um, to look out for. My details, every which way you can possibly get hold of me. <laughs> <laughs> We're like everywhere these days, aren't we, on social media and the organisation I work for as well. So that's just all my uh, details there. I wondered if I could just reflect, if if that's all right, just on a couple of things that I've, the things that I've picked out from what we've talked about today, the key sort of learning points of, you know, the scale, the statistics that, you, you know, we were talking about earlier um they're really significant and i think it for me i'm just thinking okay as a gp i've really got an opportunity here we, we've got a huge responsibility and a huge opportunity to ask the question you know you, you mentioned later on about not not being afraid to ask you know people some people would say you know they've never been asked and it's not just about self-harm but there's lots of things that i think sometimes as gps it's how do you ask that question and i think sometimes it's more important to just ask it you know and and you know we're as gps and as doctors we're, we're caring people who want to be there for our patients we want to we want to pick up on these things and especially working in 
remote environments, um, it's ever more important when we don't have those kind of physical cues. You know, I think when we think about patients being ashamed, being embarrassed about these secrets that they might have, I think sometimes just talking about that the elephant in the room is just so important. So I think that's something I've learned today just to ask. And also I think what you're mentioning about grounding techniques and distraction techniques, certainly some things for me to be mindful of and also being a bit more aware or a lot more aware actually of, of what teams such as yourselves do and, and how significant um, an impact you're having in people's lives. It's just fantastic. So thank you so much for, for all of your insights and your experience. It's really invaluable. No problem at all. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it actually and it's been nice to be asked. So thank you for asking me. And I suppose the last point I would say is that anything you do, any questions you ask, just always do it with empathy. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Lincolnshire LMC. Check out our website, linkslmc.co.uk or our Twitter or Facebook pages for more information.